thank you all for being here this morning and braving the weather out there. The snowplow went by at 4.30 this morning and woke me up and I looked out the window and you hear people shaking their fist at God out of anger over things happening in their lives. But a pastor does that whenever it's snowing miserably on a Sunday morning. And, but I know God just sets the world in motion and he doesn't have his hand there in every little snowstorm, but we are going to continue today no matter what. And thank you for coming. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. Like the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 and 20, And if Christ wasn't raised to life, our message is worthless, and so is your plan. But Christ has been raised to life and makes us certain that others will also be raised to life. So today what we're going to do is review what happened, actually the moment of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about why that was such an important event. We're going to talk about why there are so many huge implications for us today, because Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. But first of all, we're going to start off by looking at what happened during that first hour after Jesus comes back to life. And we're going to do it by observing the emotions of a group of women who have gone from just terrible despair to ecstasy in a matter of minutes. So starting in Matthew 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Now the other Gospels tell us that there was actually a group of women that went there, and Salome and Joanna were a part of that group. And these were women who had followed Jesus for three years. They were devastated at the fact that he had been crucified. They'd known him since childhood, some of them. One of them was even an aunt of his. They loved him deeply. They were horrified by the crucifixion. And then they regretted that they never had the time to actually perform a proper burial. They, there was such a rush to get Jesus' body into that tomb before the Sabbath day began that they didn't have the opportunity to make proper preparations. So now they are so pleased that they had the opportunity to do this. And they agreed that once that Sabbath day was over, they were going to go and they were going to make certain that his body was anointed and prepared properly. So at dawn on that first resurrection morning, they kind of trudged towards the tomb. They, they don't know what they're going to do when they get there. They know that a big stone has been rolled over the entrance to the tomb, and they know that it's been sealed, never to be opened again. There's a contingent of soldiers that has been hired basically as security guards to make sure that that body stays in that tomb. Because they don't want anybody stealing the body and then claiming that Jesus was somehow alive. But these women, they were coming to anoint the body. They weren't coming to steal it. They just wanted to show their love. It's just like people taking flowers to a cemetery and placing them beside a gravestone. Or many times we'll see people erect small crosses on the side of a road or a street where a friend or a family member or loved one has been killed in a car accident. So in verse 2, there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now their emotions 
switch from grief to insecurity. If there was a big earthquake when Jesus was dying on the cross, and now just a few days later, there's another earthquake, and it can't be an aftershock because this is the real thing. So they're uncertain as to what has happened, but that tremor signified the world's most earth-shaking event. And what the women didn't know was that an angel had come down from heaven, had rolled back a stone from the entrance to the tomb, and Bible scholars point out that the stone wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could get out of the tomb. That Jesus had the power to just come outside of all the clothing that was wrapped around him, all those different rags that were wrapped around him. Jesus, in his resurrected body, was able to walk through walls. So the stone didn't need to be removed so that he could get out of that tomb. The stone was removed so that others could look in and see that the tomb was empty. And then verse 3, his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. So the guards passed out for a few minutes. And we don't know if it was because of shock at seeing this angel and they just passed out like we see people do all the time in movies and TV programs. Or maybe God actually caused them to be unconscious for a time period. But when the guards woke up, the tomb was empty, the body was gone, and they knew that they were in deep trouble because they were guarding that tomb with their lives. How could they not keep a dead body in the sealed tomb? And Matthew records a few verses later how the guards went to report to the religious leaders exactly what had happened. Because I'm sure they were saying, okay, if we tell them the truth, if we tell them exactly the way it was, then surely we won't be in trouble as a result of this. So rather than punishing the guards for failing at what seemed to be a very simple assignment, the religious leaders gave them a large sum of money and said, okay guys, here's your story. You fell asleep, and while you were sleeping, some followers of Jesus came along and took the body. Now that's an obvious lie. Because if these soldiers were sleeping on duty, that was a death sentence for them. They would be executed. But that's their story, and they were sticking to it. And when the women arrived at the tomb, they were puzzled. My father-in-law was a preacher for almost 60 years, and when he passed away back in 2001, he had a lot of books, and they all kind of came to our house. I used some of them, I gave a lot of them away, and I'm still discovering them. It's amazing. I did a major cleanup here a week and a half ago, and came across another box of Alan's books. And in there was a book written by a man by the name of Frank Morrison. And it was written back in 1930. And Morrison was a religious skeptic who decided that he was going to write a book that would disprove the resurrection. It would just shut the Christians up forever. But then, in the course of his studies, he actually became convinced that the resurrection literally occurred. So in the preface of that book, here's what he said. The inner story of a man who originally set out to write one kind of book and found himself quite compelled by the sheer force of circumstances to write another. So instead of writing a book to discredit the resurrection, he wrote a book that actually reinforced it. 
And the title of his book is Who Moved the Stone? And then there he said, like, who moved it? The women? Well, the women certainly couldn't. They weren't strong enough. The disciples couldn't do it because they were terrified of being arrested. The guards didn't do it because their lives were in jeopardy if that body disappeared. And the religious leaders certainly didn't do it because that's why they hired the guards in the first place. They wanted to make certain that that tomb stayed sealed. So he said in his book, only God could and did move that stone. Now the women were relieved when they got there and saw that the stone was rolled away. But then once again, they're perplexed by all of this because the Roman guard is no longer there. And they're wondering, okay, where are they? What's going on? And then they notice a man who's dressed in a bright white garment sitting on a stone outside the tomb. And they're thinking, who is this guy? And then picking up in verse 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. So then they went inside the tomb, and they saw, just as the angel had said, and they saw the clothes that Jesus had wrapped around him. But that still didn't mean that Jesus had risen. They thought, okay, maybe his enemies wanted to do more damage to that body than was already done. Because it was common for enemies of people to abuse the dead bodies of haters, conquered leaders. But the Philistines decapitated King Saul, and they nailed his body to a wall, and they desecrated it until some of his followers came along and reclaimed it. And I was remembering back to when the U.S. invaded Iraq, and four American soldiers were killed. And the Iraqi soldiers took those four bodies and drug those mutilated bodies through the streets, and then they eventually hang, were actually hanging them over a bridge above the Euphrates River. When people hate someone else so much, they're not just satisfied enough to kill them, but they want to disgrace their bodies to the nth degree. So the women are wondering, if maybe some of Jesus' enemies had done the same thing. They overpowered the soldiers. They took the body out of the tomb and wanted to humiliate him even further than the beatings, than the spitting, than the crucifixion. But then there was a little bit of hope because Luke's Gospel tells us that when they went into that tomb, there was an angel sitting at the head and another one sitting at the foot of that slab on which Jesus was placed. And they desperately wanted to believe that Jesus was alive. But things were happening so fast now. Their hearts were pounding. They desperately wanted to believe that Jesus was alive. But it seemed too good to be true. But the angel said, then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So now the women are very excited because maybe, just maybe, this one who was able to raise Lazarus from the dead was actually able to raise himself from the dead. So they also remembered him vaguely predicting a resurrection. And it's all starting to come back now. And their hope has just risen to an amazing level. 
So in verse 8, the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Now from this point on in the story, like everybody's running. The women run to tell the disciples. Then some of the disciples run back to the tomb. They want to verify what has happened. But everybody is in a hurry to find out if all of this is true or not. And when they do find out it's true, then they're anxious to share the news. So they run again. So the women race back toward Jerusalem to share this experience with the disciples of Jesus. And as they rush back, they then experience an event that they'll never forget. Let's read verse 9. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. <laughs> and the Bible almost understates events rather than sensationalizing them. And I could just picture Jesus just casually standing there beside a tree, and the women walk along, and he says, Hi there. Like, how are you this morning? No great display of joy or anything like that. Like, Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Christ, says that one of the reasons he believes in the resurrection is because the people who first discovered it were women. He points out that in that day, women had almost no credibility. They were not even allowed to testify in court. They were barely permitted to speak in public. So if you were going to conjure up a story about a resurrection, the last thing in the world you would do is make the first witnesses to the event be women, because no one would believe that. The Bible just doesn't read like a fabrication. So these women, they turn around, and they see Jesus smiling at them. And now it's euphoria. They realize that Jesus really has risen from the dead. All these other signs gave them hope, but now they've actually seen him. And they get down on the ground, and they clasp his legs. And they don't grab him around the soldiers, they don't, shoulders, sorry. They don't go and shake his hand. But it's down on the ground, wrapping their arms around his legs. And that's because they recognize that he is no ordinary man. And they are on their knees worshiping him as God. And the Bible teaches that when we see Jesus, that's going to be the very same reaction that we have as well. But the scriptures tell us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what an amazing transformation has taken place in the lives of these women. They began the day in agonizing grief and now they just can't contain themselves with the excitement of what they have just discovered in knowing that Jesus is really alive. Over the past five weeks we've been doing a series of teaching called Graphic Easter and redemption. And we've been talking about the desertion of Jesus by his friends. We've been talking about his rejection by his enemies, his torture by the Romans. And then last week, we talked about his death. But the one who was crucified, the one who died, the one who was buried, is now very much alive. And then verse 10 reads, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And see him they did. Like the two disciples walking to Emmaus got to walk and talk with, and eat with Jesus. The eleven disciples saw him on a couple of occasions in the upper room. They saw him by the Sea of Galilee. They saw him at the Mount of Olives. James, the half-brother of Jesus, saw him. And Simon Peter had a personal encounter with him. And then there were over 500 people that saw him at one time. And then, about a decade later, 
Paul, or Saul as he was known at that time, met Jesus on the road to Damascus. So Jesus was very much alive. So why was it necessary that Jesus come back to life? And why is this historical fact such a pivotal part of the Christian faith? Why couldn't Jesus just say, My Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and then die, and just stay dead? Why did he come back to life in a resurrection? So I want to suggest two reasons why the resurrection is essential to the Christian gospel. And the first one is that it demonstrates the reality of life after death. And from the beginning of time, people have asked the very same question that Job asked centuries ago. He said, if a man lives and then dies, will he live again? And some people say, okay, we're just like animals. When you die, it's over. It's just as if we're roadkill. We're finished. So for those of us that grew up in PEI, that's skunks. And for those of you that have grown up in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, that would be raccoons. That's what they're saying we're like. They don't understand that when God said, let us make man in our image, he was talking about placing an eternal soul or an eternal spirit within us that lives on beyond this life. But then some people kind of have the lives beyond this life part, right? And they say, okay, when our, we die, our spirit will live on, but it will be reincarnated, and our spirit will come back to inhabit some other being. And then we've got mediums and psychics who pretend to be able to actually communicate with spirits and ghosts on the other side. But Jesus, he ended all the speculations altogether when he came back from the grave, because he proved that a new life is possible. So look at Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, and then we'll read chapter 15, verses 20 to 23. But Christ has been raised to life, and he makes us certain that others will also be raised to life. Just as we will die because of Adam, we will be raised to life because of Christ. Adam brought death to all of us, and Christ will bring life to all of us. But we must each wait our turn. Christ was the first to be raised to life, and his people will be raised to life when he returns. Let's say that you and a friend were out walking through some caves, and you've become trapped in this cave because the tide is starting to come in, and the water is coming in rapidly. You're sitting on a ledge, which is about four feet from the ceiling of the cave, and the water's now lapping around your feet and still coming up quickly. Your friend who's with you is a very good swimmer. He says, okay, there's got to be some other cave around here. This water has to be going somewhere. So he dives under the water and disappears. He's gone for a minute. Then it's two minutes. And then finally, after five minutes, he bursts back up again. And you immediately have hope because you realize that he couldn't hold his breath for five minutes. So he must have found another cave where there is some air, where there is some security. And then, if your friend says to you, let's go down underwater, just a few feet down, there's a tunnel, and all we have to do is just follow the current underwater, and it will lead us to a much bigger cave, one that has more air, and one where I've seen light at the top, and we'll be able to crawl out of that cave. Like, would you believe him? Would you follow him? Like, I would, because he's proven it by going there and coming back again. 
So would you follow him? I would, because that's the only hope available. The water continues to rise. You have no other choice. So in spite of my fear of deep water, I would still hop down in there. I would hold on to his foot, and I would let him guide me through that tunnel into that other cave. Like, people will react quickly when they don't think. Like, back when I was a teenager and couldn't swim, some friends and I went to the beach, and they all took swimming lessons. They just jumped in the water and swam right up to the ropes. So I kind of followed them, get out there and realized, not a good idea. I had to pull myself back by the ropes and just kind of float and dog paddle. And then a lifeguard came up to me and said, maybe you should stay in the more shallow water. Why did he come out and help me in all my panic? But I would follow that friend, because that friend had gone somewhere where we could be saved. Jesus disappeared into the cavern of death, and three days later he came back to life. And the moment that he walked out of that tomb, he proved that there is life beyond death. The, and that demonstrates the reality of life after death. And now when he says in John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me will live, even though he dies. Well, that carries huge implications, because that means that he is the one who set the example. He's the original one who came back to life. So do you believe him when he says that? Like I do. When he says, follow me, I am the way and the truth and the life, like will you follow him? I'm certainly going to do that. His resurrection demonstrates the reality of life after death. He's the only one that's done it. He's the one in which we put our hope. Then in Romans 8, 11, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So that carries amazing implications for every one of us when we come face to face with death. Like our faith in Jesus Christ is going to give life to our mortal bodies. I was looking through my records of my weddings and funerals. I've actually only conducted 30 funeral services in all the years I've been in ministry. Like it's five and six times that as far as weddings are concerned. And, and that's good. It, it's good to have more weddings. But as I looked through, I remembered some of those funerals. And I remember going to some cemeteries in miserable weather. It was really cold. It might have been snowing like it is today. And it always seemed to work out that this was a committal for a believer. And even though it was cold, I wasn't concerned at all about the weather because I was thinking, you know, the soul of that person who has passed away is now experiencing the warmth of paradise. Jesus' death and resurrection makes all that possible. So when that day comes for you, I can tell you that if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you have hope because He has conquered death. So in 2 Corinthians 4.14, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Isn't that an amazing promise? Our resurrection is not going to be like Jesus where it happens immediately after death and we come back to life and other people see us there. It's going to happen on judgment day. But what a promise to be in his presence forever. 
Another reason why we believe in the resurrection is because it is essential to demonstrate God's authority over all the earth. And Jesus made incredible claims. He said that he was God in the flesh. He said, I and the Father are one. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he said, I'm going to be coming again on the clouds with all the angels of heaven with me. Like what? Amazing claims. If he wasn't really the Son of God, then those claims are outrageous and there are the assertions of an egomaniac or a lunatic. But he didn't just make those bold assertions, but insisted that he would validate the reality of them by raising from the dead. At one time he said, I'm going to destroy this temple, and in three days it will be built back up again. He was talking about his own body. They thought he was talking about their temple, their place of worship. But he did it. And that verified that he was the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, because no ordinary man could do what he did, come back from the dead. So on the first Resurrection Sunday night, Jesus appeared to his disciples, and for some reason Thomas wasn't with them. And Thomas seemed to be a more cerebral one of that group. And the others excitedly reported to him, like, Thomas, you missed it, man. We actually saw Jesus. The women were right. Jesus is alive. But Thomas just wasn't going to believe it. He said, until I placed my finger in the wounds that the nails left in his hands, until I've actually placed my hand into the wound that that spear made in his side, I'm not going to believe it. But the next Sunday night, they were all together in the same room, and guess who shows up again? In John 20, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And when Thomas saw that Jesus was really alive, he called him God. He said, My Lord and my God. And did you notice that Jesus didn't correct him? He didn't say, well, Thomas, man, you shouldn't really call me that. Just call me Jesus. I'm just a mere man. But he actually affirmed what Thomas had said to him as being true. In verse 29, then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now that last part of that verse, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But that's you. That's me. That's those of us 2,000 years later who didn't actually see Jesus Christ in the flesh. But we still believe it's true because of our faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave affirms His authority over all of us. And just before He ascended back to heaven, He gave these words to His disciples in Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end, the very end of the age. If Jesus really died for our sins and came back from the grave, that means he's Lord of all. But... So many people just don't want that authority in their lives. They don't want Jesus telling them what to do. And it starts from the time when we're very little. In my first church, 
in Dornbridge, New Brunswick, I actually had three youth groups on the go, a senior high group and a junior high group, and then a group for grades one to six. And there was a mother helping me out with that younger group, and she brought her son, Ed, who was four years old. Smartest little kid, but too smart in some ways. I asked him a question one time, if he wanted to play this game, and he goes, not especially. Like this big word out of a four-year-old. But then he did something wrong one time, and I tried to correct him. And he just folds his arms, you have no authority over me. And a little spurt, like he, he can't get it. Like, and now he's an elder in a church in the area. It's amazing And he's grown up to be so different. But it starts from that point in our lives. Like, he was right. Like, I didn't really have any authority over him. He was just there hanging around the group. So I went and got his mom. But in our pride, we attempt to be our own authority. And we want to determine what's right and what's wrong all by ourselves. But when you become a Christian, all of a sudden that changes. Jesus becomes our authority. He's not just the Savior of our souls. He's the Lord of our lives. He's the source of truth. So Jesus is the authority in all matters. It matters of marriage, child-rearing, diet, forgiveness, generosity, lawsuits, divorce, business ethics, paying taxes, worship, use of money, salvation. The list just goes on and on. God's Word sets forth guidelines for each of those areas and many other areas of ethical concerns. I love Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. I know you've probably heard it many times. This is from the contemporary English version. Christ was truly God, but He did not try to remain equal with God. Instead, He gave up everything and became a slave when He became like one of us. Christ was humble, he obeyed God, and even died on a cross. Then God gave Christ the highest place and honored his name above all others. So in the name of Jesus, everyone will bow down, those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And to the glory of God the Father, everyone will openly agree, Jesus Christ is Lord. And to the glory of God the Father, everyone will openly agree, I love that, Jesus Christ is Lord. So each one of us has to make a decision. Do we believe that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead? And are we willing to make him the Savior and Lord of our lives? And if you do, then he promises to make life totally new for you. And there's no sin that can't be forgiven. There's no life that can't be transformed by his power. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And notice this, the old has gone and the new has come. That's the transformation that takes place. Jesus, who had the authority over the grave, has the authority to forgive your sin, to wipe your past clean, to transform your life, to resurrect you to a new life. Give him the opportunity to do that as we stand to sing our commitments.